We all start somewhere. We all have a history behind us. We all have stories that have helped to shape who we are. For a lot of people, maybe our stories are a little bit difficult. Maybe there is something in your past that is painful. Sometimes we feel like maybe the scars of our past are on display for everyone to see and we feel broken. We feel like those things make us damaged goods. But what if those things actually make us beautiful? What if those things actually make us stronger? My guest today is telling her story of how growing strong roots is what actually makes the broken in our past beautiful. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, a CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an incredible person who is trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is the incredible and amazing author, speaker, podcast host, Mary Morantz. Mary grew up in a single wide trailer in rural West Virginia, the first of her immediate family to go to college. She went on to earn a law degree from the nation's top-ranked law school, Yale. After ditching a six-figure salary law firm offers in London and New York, she started a business with her husband, Justin. Together, they've built a successful online education platform for creative entrepreneurs. She's also the host of the highly ranked and popular podcast, The Mary Morantz Show. And just yesterday, Mary released her first book, Dirt, Growing Strong Roots in What Makes the Broken Beautiful. She and her husband, Justin, live in an 1880s fixer-upper by the sea in New Haven, Connecticut, along with their two very fluffy golden retrievers, Goodspeed and Atticus. Mary has actually been a friend of mine for quite a few years. We finally had met in person, actually, at a conference back in 2015 that we were both speaking at. And when I tell you that Mary Morantz is the real deal, she is the real deal. I'm going to tell you this throughout the episode, but seriously, if you have not purchased Mary's book, go do it right now. It is on sale wherever books are sold. She is an incredibly gifted storyteller. She is a painter with words, and she's just an incredible human, and I absolutely loved this conversation. But before we get to our conversation with Mary, I want to just ask you a question. Did you know that I have an ethical brand directory? That ethical brand directory is actually what Chelsea used to start finding products for her boutique almost four years ago. Now, Amaz Uma carries over 50 intentionally sourced brands and is the perfect one-stop shop for all of your gift-giving needs. And as a thank you to the Still Being Molly and Business with Purpose podcast community, Chelsea is offering 20% off with the code SHOPWITHMOLLY. So you can actually head to shopwithmolly.com for all the details. I also want to thank another partner of the show, and that is GoX. GoX makes fundraising easy. Your custom fair trade tea can raise money for a cause, club, or event in a few simple steps. First, you'll set up your fundraiser by selecting a sustainable, eco-friendly blank tea, the artwork, and setting the price. And then second, they'll provide a proof for approval and then send you a link to your fundraiser page. And then third, you'll share your link with why you're raising funds and ask friends and family to purchase the tea. At the end of the fundraiser, they print and ship the teas and send you a check for all of your profits. To learn more about fundraising with GoX, visit goxapparel.com forward slash fundraise. That's goxapparel, G-O-E-X apparel.com forward slash fundraise. Now on to my conversation with Mary. 
I am so excited to welcome one of, truly one of my favorite people in the whole wide world uh, to the show today. And this is a long time coming. I have wanted to have this amazing woman on the show for, for years. I mean, let's see, the show's four years old. I mean, since like probably 2016, 2017, and we're making it happen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mary Marantz. Mary, thank you for being here. Oh my gosh. Like with an intro like that, I feel like we should just stop recording and be done <laughs> Just gonna go down from there. That thank you so much. Thank I'm I was telling Justin, I was like, I have literally been counting down the days until I get Aww. to hang out with Molly. So thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to to talk to you and just to get to see you. I know. We've got we have been we have met in person. We both uh we were uh speakers at Creative at Heart back in like 2015. Yeah. Um, and but you're just one of those people who like I'd known online and then I met you in person. And I'm like, I know that if we lived closer, like we would be like in real life friends. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, totally. We would not get anything no. done. We, <laughs> For sure. We would just do pop culture references yes. and like eat awesome food yes. and it would be amazing. And like, do, I don't know, make memes. I don't know. I don't know what, yes. <laughs> I don't know if we'd have enough time. Um, well, yeah. I am just so excited to introduce you uh, to uh, my, my listeners. So I'm going to have you do what all my guests do and that's give us the Mary 101. So tell us who you are, yeah. what you do and how you got to where you are today. Oh my goodness. Um, I feel like I always feel like you know that movie Walk Hard? I think that's what it's called. It's like the it's like the spoof of Walk the Line. And he's like, yes. Dewey Cox has to think about his whole life before he goes yeah. on stage. I always feel like that when I'm trying to tell my story. So I'll try to give the elevator version of it. Um, and then we can go go more into whatever you want to. So the short version is that I grew up in rural West Virginia on top of a mountain. Like we were literally like, if you think about the very tippy top of a mountain, and then you go up a little road, <laughs> a little higher. Like that's where we lived. Um, I grew up in a single wide trailer. My dad's a logger. My grandfather was a coal miner turned logger. So we're kind of like the West Virginia state flag is basically our family. And um, I was the first in my family to go to college. My immediate family, I had an aunt who went to college, but in my direct line, I was the first one to go to college and ended up moving to Connecticut to New Haven to go to Yale Law School which is, you know, quite a, a leap in one generation. My dad barely graduated high school to his daughter um, going to Yale Law School. And so yeah. um, as soon as I graduated Yale Law School with all of those lovely student loans, I said, hey, let's not do that. Let's not go work for a law firm that's offering me six figures and bonuses and benefits. Let's start a photography business. And um, I did that with Justin, who I met while I was in law school. He is not uh, a lawyer. We met in New Haven and we started our business in 2006, right after I graduated. And we have built that business together for the last mm, like 13, 14 years until last year, I actually signed a book deal and retired from wedding photography to be an author full time. Wow. That was pretty elevatory. I feel that like is, you got it. That was great. <laughs> yeah. That was great. I mean, because I know so much about you. It's always like funny when you interview people that you you kind of know and so you know yeah. more about them. And you really did. Like you really yeah. summed it up. And that's <laughs> like that's been rehearsed. I love it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, I mean, obviously I want to go back and really, you know, as you said, spoiler alert, you became an author full time. And yep. so your book Dirt has yes. released, which is uh, as of today, when this airs, it will have re released uh, the yeah. day before. Yeah. And um, you're just, you're such a, a talented writer, but it really is a memoir of, mm -hmm. of your, your life and growing up in rural West Virginia. And so I want to go back and you talk about how it all started with dirt. Like where yeah. did this whole idea come from? Oh, the it all started with dirt part. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know what's crazy is I feel like God is really, really funny. I feel like God is like this. He's character. hilarious. He's hilarious, right? He has a lot of fun with us, I feel like. So I gave a talk around the same time we were meeting. I gave a talk in like 2014, 2015, I would say probably, at this conference that the at the time was called the Pursuit. 31 conference. It's changed um, names since then, but at the time it was called the Pursuit Conference. And, you know, God always just had this way of moving when all of the speakers ended up at that wind-shaped campus and we would all come there thinking we knew what our talks were about and then they would end up changing while we were there. Yep. And so in that year in particular, he ended up giving me this talk called It Always Started With Dirt. Mm. And that was kind of the first time I had hinted at my dad's story. I'd shared sort of the like, I don't know, romantic version, I guess, of of how I grew up. But that was the first time that I really started to see these parallels in my dad's story and how in a lot of ways we we're going along on the exact same path to, down to the to going to the very same elementary school 
that had five rooms total. So kindergarten and first grade were in a room, third and fourth were in a room, fifth and sixth were in a room, second got a room to themselves, and then there was like a gym cafetoriasium or whatever. Um, And so we were very much set up to be on the same path. And my dad was 12 when he went to start working in the woods. Like I said, he barely finished high school because he was working in the woods. And there was just this weaving of God talking about like he was leading me to it. This is getting way more into like the faith side right off the bat, which is awesome. Um, But he was leading me into these scriptures um, talking about Philippi and being, and Paul talking about being the bridge among people in Philippi. And I had also been led to lead a story about my dad cutting down the trees that rebuilt this covered bridge in West Virginia called Philippi. Mm. So it was just very, same spelling, just different pronunciation. It was just crazy how that was being woven together. And the other crazy part about that is I was the first At that particular conference, I went first. And then all of the other speakers, unbeknownst to any of us, had like these elements of dirt woven into their talks. And so it just felt like, whoa, that was really cool. And I didn't really think about it too much more, but it just sort of got into my head. It just sort of like, it was always there. And when it kind of came time to start putting my proposal together, I just, I don't know. It was just one of those God things where it's like, you know it and you know it has to be this way, but you don't even know why, but you just, you feel it. It's like, after a certain time, I think you start to trust those, like, I have no idea why it has to be this way, but it has to be this way. Mm. Um, and I just knew it had to be dirt. I knew that it, the tagline in the proposal had to be, it always started with dirt. And I feel like he was giving me glimpses in 2014 or 15 of where we were headed in 2020. And so that's what I mean by God is funny. He was like, this is not going to make any sense at the time, but when you look back on it, all the dots are going to connect. And there was actually a story that happened at that conference in terms of the sound guy telling me something about like caterpillars and how they actually transform in the process that looks like that, that ends up in this book. So it was like, not just that title of the talk. It was a lot of stuff that was even happening right then in that moment. Like this story has literally been being written since birth all the way up until, you know, I sat down and started writing it. So that's a really long way of saying I was given the title for it and I was given the tagline for it before I even really knew what it, what I was holding on to. Yeah. And you know what it's come to mean for me now is there's just so much symbolism in this book. Oh my gosh, like we could spend hours trying to break it down. But it's this idea of dirt is a play on God breathed life into dust. So right. from dirt from dirt you came and to dirt you shall return, like being reminded that our time here is fleeting. And there is this tendency to want to run from the mud in our stories and the dirt on our hands and the dirt under our fingernails from the last time we dug ourselves out of the mud and to want to hide and gloss over and make shiny and make pretty. And, you know, there's this part in the book where I talk about if uh, there was a time where if if freedom looked like a house, it would look like the father of the bride house. You know, it's Mm, cool in the summer and warm in the winter and, and you wear pearls to play basketball, basically. And it's this journey of first you try to run away from the mud and you realize you can't outrun it because you can't uh. outrun you. And then you try to make not just peace, but actually like take ownership of that. Yeah. It's like you, you started from that place. Yeah. And yeah. You can go be the one who changes it in your generation. You can be the break in the chains, but man, don't forget where it started. Mm, mm, that's so good. And I love, I love when God does stuff like that. Um, yeah. And, and it's, and he's always doing stuff like that. It's a matter of, of whether or not we're paying attention and whether mm. or not we're listening. And um, actually in my Bible study right now, I'm in first uh, Kings and I'm right at the, the, the part where Elijah is looking for God. He's looking to hear from God and he doesn't hear him in the storm and he doesn't hear him in the big, you know, the big, big, big things. He hears him in this still small whisper. Yeah. And that is when God finally speaks to him and God speaks to him in this still small whisper. And that is just one of those reminders that every time I read that passage, I'm reminded that like, yes, God can be in, in whatever he wants to be in. And yes, sometimes he is in the very big things, but other times more often than not, it's when we get quiet and we get still and we are obedient and he shows up in the little things and the whisper. And that's what I feel like you've done is you've walked out that, that obedience in listening to God in the whisper. And it's just, it's so powerful. And, you know, I want to also just kind of have you share a little bit more about what it was like to grow up in rural mountainous West Virginia. And I was actually, I think it was a couple of months ago, I was reading an article about kind of how rural West Virginia has become almost like a forgotten 
place. And um, it gets overlooked a lot when when we talk about um, poverty in America. It gets overlooked a lot when we talk about areas that need change or um, areas that are kind of not frozen in time, but you know what Mm. I mean, where just things have really stayed the same for a long time. And so a big part of your, the reason you wanted to to write the book is because you wanted to honor West Virginia and honor your story. So I'd love for you to just kind of share kind of both of that is what it was like to grow up and and what are, what are some of the things that people maybe know about West Virginia? Maybe they don't um, and why you wanted to, to honor the place where you came from. Yeah, you know, it's really cool actually. Like at the time we're recording this, when I hang up with you here in just a little bit, I'm hopping on to record for my show, for my podcast, The Mary Moran Show, um, Ashley York, who's a filmmaker and a documentarian. And she also starred in the documentary Hillbilly. And it's like Hillbilly with an asterisk, basically. And it's like her, she grew up in rural Kentucky, did her undergrad in the University of Kentucky, and then went out to California to be a filmmaker. And it's her going back home with the specific purpose of kind of like dispelling some of these stereotypes. And she gets into the history of how some of these stereotypes came to be and why they came to be, like how they were used powerfully. Because if you can make a a group of people seem less than or other than Mm -hmm. or smaller than, then it's a lot easier for them to be exploited or, you know, for big companies to come in, which is a whole other, whole other topic. But, um, you know, growing up in rural West Virginia in a lot of ways, the book is divided into two parts. It's, it's divided into the girl in the trailer and the girl after the trailer. Mm. And in our opening scene, we're in a hospital. We're going to see my dad in a hospital room. And I really kind of like hit home how it's like two of us are standing there. There's the girl in the trailer and there's the girl after. And they had both, they both sort of knew they had come, should have come sooner. And so, you know, when I think back to some of the things that were just totally normal when I was growing up, um, there is a certain element of like, man, that doesn't feel like a long time ago. That feels like another lifetime ago. Yeah. Like, like you know, a different like, person. Different person. Like, like, wait, wait, hold on. Like that really, that really did happen that way, right? And I think part of that is a function of growing up in the 80s, I think to a certain extent. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what it was like to be a kid in the 80s versus what it's like to be a kid now are just two vastly different experiences. Seinfeld has this running joke where it's like, he's talking about, I think like the seventies or the sixties. He's like, yeah, it was kind of like growing up, like being a raccoon. Like your parents were aware you were there, but like, they didn't really look for you until it got dark, you know? Um, and it, it was kind of like that. Like I would wake up, especially in the summers and we would just be gone from like sun up until way after dark. We would ride like back and forth to the little strip, you know, asphalt airport at the end of the road, a six miles round trip three times. So 18 miles on our bike. And then like who knows how many miles like crawling through the woods and these like old log roads. And I think back now and I'm like, I honestly have no idea how we didn't die. <laughs> yeah, know? It's like there were rattlesnakes that we were climbing on like old logging equipment. We're walking these like rock ledges. Like it's kind of a miracle that we survived. And to a certain extent, I feel like my childhood on that level was a dream. Like we're sort of living like this movie version of being a kid that probably won't exist. I don't know, ever again, maybe? I don't know. We'll see. But I mean, there was also this element of, to kind of get to your point, of Appalachia being this place that people think they know everything they need to know about, yeah, um, and then they can move on and forget it. There was a certain element that I had to balance when I was telling the story. One of the things that frustrates people in Appalachia is when people leave Appalachia and then, or even maybe they just visited, and then they, they say these things about it and they boil it down to these like... You know, check a few boxes and you know everything you need to know. So the the argument goes, please stop painting Appalachia as we live in trailers and we have trucks propped up on blocks and we have stray dogs and like we're loggers or coal miners and we come from Scotch-Irish descent. Yeah. And I get that. But this is a memoir. It's nonfiction. And my story just so happens to check all those boxes. And so it was a really interesting balance to always lean into you like we're going to we're going to start dear reader in chapter 1 and chapter 2 maybe prologue whatever with you hitting you where you what you think you know about Appalachia there were cars on blocks in my childhood we did you know eat deer meat or what have you you know we did have junk in our yard whatever the case may be we're going to set that up but then we're I'm going to then use I've given you all that information to begin with so yeah I guess you knew those things but here's all of the rest of the book about what you don't know yeah. And the complexity of these characters and the dignity and the work ethic and the integrity and like how both of those things can be true. Mm. That there is this caricature picture in your head, but you're going to look at it completely different on the other side. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. You know, I always struggle too with when you when you learn different things about different places and you you hear maybe the stereotypes. Like I'm somebody who is 
I'm always the person who looks beyond those things, but that's just my, my nature. And so Mm -hmm. I love that you kind of, you're like, all right, I'm going to hit you with the things right up front of like, here's the things that you think, you know, and here's maybe what has a little bit of truth, but here's the things you don't know. And here's like, we're going to go a little bit deeper and you're going to, um, you're going to really learn because everything has so much depth and nuance. And, um, there's so many uniquenesses in all of our stories no matter where we grew up. And so I love that you really peel back those layers. Um, and, and I know in the book, you talk a lot about how there's sort of these like two parallel timelines between your story and your dad's story. And you, you kind of alluded to that. Um, and I'd love for you to kind of share what those parallels were and then, what was that, that linchpin, that moment where the, the stories veered off? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, you kind of, you mentioned frozen in time and like in a lot of ways that's true. I mean, I always want to give like honor and respect to the fact that there's like a new generation of Appalachia rising yeah. and, and that it is, you know, they're, they're seeing the things that they want to change about their area and they are forward thinking and, and all of that. But there is a certain element of, especially like the physical structures, like there's a part in the book where I talk about going back to the trailer after, you know, being away for an entire year. Um, when I went to study in England and like nothing had changed, you know, it was frozen in time. And so, you know, I feel like with my story, like I said, when I, when I kind of came into the world, I was launched onto this path that would have been very, very similar to my dad. So we both grew up being raised in large part by my grandma Goldie, who was his mom and she lived next door. So she's a huge influence in my life. She was both grandma and parent kind of at the same time. She insisted on taking us both to the same little Sunday school at the Macedonian Methodist Church, you know, until yeah. my dad got big enough to kind of rebel and say he wasn't going anymore. And then um, we both, like I said, like I mentioned, we're going to go to that same grade school. And I went to that same grade school until about fourth grade when it closed and they consolidated us all down into the one town at the bottom of all the mountains. And so same mother figure to a certain extent, same yard, same house, same Sunday school, same church, you know same school that we were going to. And so same neighbors, same everything, you know, and it could have very, you know, one of my dad's favorite sayings, and I challenge him on this all the time, is this is the way it was, this is the way it is, this is the way it always will be when he talks about his life. Mm. But he was very determined that my life would look different. And so the linchpin moment for me, and I would say this to anybody listening, maybe you feel like you are from one of those forgotten areas, or you feel like you're from one of those forgotten families, your circumstances feel like, this is how it was, how it is, and how it always will be, is never underestimate, A, the power of education. Like, Mm. I truly, truly feel like my dad coming home with those workbooks from a grocery store, you know, he he didn't necessarily, wasn't like a trained teacher. He didn't necessarily like have a bunch of like reading and math skills himself necessarily. Like, I mean, he could read, I'm not saying that, but he wasn't like big on education himself or or school himself. But he said, I'm going to get these workbooks. I'm going to bring them home. You're going to work on them every night at the table. I'm not going to necessarily like go through them with you, but you're going to work on them right there. That became this kind of spark and this domino that sets off this whole chain reaction where it's like, then I go into kindergarten and I'm ahead of the curve. And so they go, oh, she's smart. And so then, you know, the teachers tend to, you know, they speak, you speak life or death and words have power. So they call you smart, you act smart. They talked about me skipping a grade at one point. They put me in a gifted program. So it was like these labels that I was given early on simply because he said, by the time you start kindergarten, by the time I started kindergarten at Mrs. Oliver's class, when I was five years old, he had me in a fifth grade math and a sixth grade reading level. Wow. So that, you know, we would read the encyclopedias when we weren't doing the workbook. Like that was something he could control. He couldn't control the world I was born into. He couldn't control whether we, you know, had wealth or didn't have wealth. He couldn't control getting me into the quote unquote right schools, but he could absolutely control how prepared I would be on day one of kindergarten. Do you know Mm. what I mean? And so to the person listening and it feels like it's hopeless, I would say never, ever underestimate A, the power of education and how that can change an entire family tree in one generation. And B, just as importantly, the power you have to be the first person in that child's life to give them those kind of labels of smart and talented and gifted. And this is what I see in you. And I'm going to set you up to whatever extent I can and let the dominoes fall from there. Oh yeah. The power of words. I mean, that is something that I, I don't think is emphasized enough and how much we can speak life over people and, you know, speak encouragement. And that's what I try to do with my own kids. And because my parents did that for me, but 
I remember like I had a lot of teachers who didn't say those things to me yeah. and how much that affected me. Yeah. Um, and, and so I started to believe the lies that I was hearing at school versus what I was hearing at home. Yeah. Not that my parents' words didn't have weight. They did. But I mean, all this to say that like, even if you're somebody who's listening, who doesn't have kids of your own, but maybe you interact with children, like yeah. I talk about like our, the, the whole idea of like, it takes a village to raise a child. Like really, like there are so many second moms and second dads that my kids have and, and people in yeah. their lives that, that speak, you know, life into them. So that's really powerful. And I love that you just kind of talked about how your dad, like that was what your dad could control is like, he's like, yeah. I, I can't control all these other circumstances, but I can control your education to an extent. And I'm going to make yeah. sure that you're going to be prepared. Um, yeah. now you, you, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I read this study somewhere and I need to find this so I can actually like really get it right when I'm referencing it. But it was something to the extent of they found that kind of like the lynch, one of the linchpins in kids who didn't come from a lot, eventually going on to being able to, you know, go on to college or, or however you want to define success. Yeah. It was talking about if a child can have just one adult, just one adult yes. in their life that speaks life into them and pours into them and takes an interest in them, like that can change everything. So that, like I said, like I think... I think it's so easy to get overwhelmed when it's like you think about the just the differences that kids are being born into, you know, like, I mean, I could get off on a whole tangent, but like going through like coronavirus and COVID and quarantine, the impact that it was going to have on a kid who came from a family with means where they were going to have the internet and they could study from home and they had hot meals three times a day versus a kid who, as soon as they were home, there goes their access to tuning into those classrooms. There goes the guarantee of hot meals. There goes like the safe spaces. like. There's just, you know, uh, anybody who's studied compound interest, right? There's such this exponential dividends that can pay off from that small investment in, yeah. an, you know, in, a, in an early kid. And like, I think that's so brilliant that you said, hey, listen, that might not be a parent. Some, some people listening might be like, nope, I never had that in my family. But maybe you had a teacher or somebody at church yeah. or somebody, in, a neighbor or whatever. Just one person who said, hey, you're more than these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. I've thought about that a lot too. I mean, and I think too, just where, where my kids are in school, you know, where, where we live in Durham, you know, Lily goes to a title one elementary school where the majority of the students at her school receive free and reduced lunch. And so that was one of the first things I thought about when we went, went on lockdown is I'm like, what happens to those kids? Thank the Lord that our county stepped up right away and was making sure that they were providing meals to those those yeah. families and stuff. But still, I mean, there were kids in Lily's class who, you know, from the time we we let out in March till the last day of school, never made it onto a single Zoom call because they don't have access to the internet or technology. Yeah. And um, and so just yeah, those things are are so vital. Is is the people like what school can do for a child and and having positive influences and and adults that are caring for that child and loving for that child. So yeah, I mean I I've all that to say that I've thought a lot about that as well. Um, yeah. Now you said something that I just I, I'm maybe it's because um, I've been doing a lot of uh, ancestry um, research of my own during quarantine. Um, nice. But you made a comment about how your dad, you know, kind of said the the phrase like, "This is how it's always has been. This is how it always will be." How much do you like? Have you done research on like how far back does your family go in West Virginia? Like, where did the the logging industry, mm -hmm. like in your specific family, start? How yeah. long had it been been there? Yeah, that's such a great question. My um, grandma Goldie, who's a huge character in the book, and and I mean that in both senses. She's a character in the book, and she's a <laughs> character in the book. Um, she was kind of the family historian, and she really dug in and started doing all of our family trees, and does did all the photo albums, which I've inherited, and. Um, she was really, it was really important to her to kind of chart where we came from. And and she, being my grandma Goldie, I was her only grandchild up until I was like 22, I think. And so like, she thought I just was like, I hung the moon. And so all of the, <laughs> all of the lineages that she drew always came back to me. Yeah. Um, and so that, she really was like one of those central figures that, you know, that, that made me feel like, like we were talking about, have one adult who sees something special in you. And so we, she figured out that just on one branch of the family, we go back eight generations deep of loggers. And we actually have a photo wow. from like 1860 something of just like a, a company of loggers in the woods. And Walter McClung is one of them. And so we were McClungs before we were kings, before we were Besses, uh, before I was a Marantz. 
And so, yeah, eight generations deep of logging my great grandpa, Harry Curl Best, which you cannot make that up. That's his actual name, Harry Curl, which is like, <laughs> was your dad mad at you? What was that? Um, Harry Curl Best uh, was the first one to do kind of both. He did coal mining and logging. Wow. Um, and then my grandpa, Bill, started off as a coal miner and then switched to logging. Um, there's a really powerful story in the book where, you know, him and his brother were coal miners and there was a mining disaster. And that kind of like switched where we just went back to logging after that. And so my dad, like I said, I mean, he was not yet 12 when he was in the woods. And Uh. and this is crazy to me, but he, when he started out in logging, his first job was to take these hooks that look like, just picture like two, two giant rusty hooks that were on a hinge like scissors. And he would put them on the logs so that the horses could drag the logs down to the landing. Like that's, that's what logging looked like when he started. That's you know, like how, you know, it's how long it's been in our family. And he started off in the same manner and method of logging wow. as those, you know, 1800s loggers. So it's really, it's really interesting. And we did come from, it was like, you know, Scotland and Northern Ireland, Ireland, straight into Western Virginia. Um, and we basically, my family tree hung out there until I moved to Connecticut, which wow. is kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah. I see. I'm fascinated by that stuff. Like I could, I, I would sit there and ask like 7 million more yeah. questions about that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I love to hear about how kind of where families, I mean, I love to hear where we we came from and I think it's just, it's a really important makeup of our stories. And, um, and so you're right. I mean, like eight generations of loggers, like if that's the way it always has been, that's the way it always will be. Like, that's just how it is. And so to break that cycle, um, Mm. is, is huge. Now, obviously to go from being in West Virginia and growing up the daughter of a logger to then going to Yale Law, as you as you said, like that's a, yeah. it's a pretty big jump. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, like, how did that happen? Mm. Well, I really, I mean, this was actually, because I've thought about that a lot, like in trying to explain that story, you know, and this actually through, through the course of thinking about it and trying to like put those pieces together, it became a very very important goal for me in this book, as we've already talked about quite a bit of like, most people look at that and they see, they want to see the like made for TV movie, you know, about just the three years in law school or what have you. Yeah. But I started getting really interested in like, what were these dominoes that fell before? What was the like, the, I'm picturing like Mission Impossible fuse, you know, like, like burning along there. Like, like how did this come to be? And I really truly believe that it's like one thing turned into another, turned into another. So he brings the workbooks. I go to kindergarten, super ahead, get put in the gifted program, get put in the AP programs. Like you just, like identity is a really funny thing. Yeah. Like if somebody tells you you're something enough, you start to become that thing. And we, in the book, I really start to get into like the, the good and the bad of that. So, you know, in, in one respect, it made me an achiever. It made me get straight A's. It made me want to perform. It made me want to make people proud. It made me want to be like the, all the success and check the boxes and like, let's run from this trailer and have all the success in the world. And then, and then the story will have a happy ending. Yeah. And the flip side of that is you start to put your worth and your achieving and you're, you're, you spend your whole life running and running and running and you never let yourself breathe and you never let yourself rest and you never let yourself, it's never enough. And so you can spend your whole life trying to outrun and outachieve where you came from mm. because early on in, in his effort to just say, man, let's get you out of here. And we could also kind of talk about like how he wanted to get me out of here in terms of like the trailer and maybe, maybe the town, but not the state. And then like what happens when they keep going, when the kids keep leaving and they leave the state. Mm. But it was just sort of this like, in this effort to equip me to get out, there was also this kind of unintentional like A's are, you know, what make me proud and like being president of the honor society is what makes me proud or what have you. And and he never said that directly. It was more just like what, how I was interpreting it, how I was picking up on it. And I have, I've now reached a point several, you know, almost a year in writing this book, I've reached a point of, we can stop running. Mm. We did what we set out to do. And by we, I mean me and the girl in the trailer, we did what we set out to do. We, we went out and we built a beautiful life mm-hmm. and we have a, you know, there, there's this running symbolism throughout the book of like blueprints and, and roofs and walls and re- and now you're a real house. Like, yeah. you know, and like when the house could become real, so could I kind of thing. And, um, dang it, I'm going to get emotional on your show. What's that about? <laughs> um, come on, Molly. Um, and so, you know, I think there's this flip side of it. There's like, we go out and we build a better life and we want to be the break in the generational chains and it ends with us. And we're going to have the safe home and the warm home yeah. and the pretty home. But at some point 
it has to be enough. We have to stop running and we have to say no amount of stuff, no amount of achievement is going to fill this hole. Yeah. And so let's go back to the beginning and let's do the real work of healing. Yeah. And that's a lot. That's a huge part of what part two of the book is about. Yeah. Yeah. Now you, you talked about in the book, how you felt like you never belonged at Yale Law. Yeah. Did that ever change? Like, did that f- feeling ever go away? You know, it's so fascinating because I think the first important thing to really say is that I didn't feel like I belonged there well, only because of the voices in my head. Nobody, nobody ever yeah. said something or did something to make me feel that way that I want to be really clear about. I just went in expecting that they would. And so I kind of spent the whole three years holding everybody at arm's length only to get to the end and it was all fine. And then wish, man, if I could go back and do this over, I wouldn't do the law school part or the reading 300 pages a night part over. But man, I would have gotten to know these people better because I was just so convinced they were going to reject me that I tried to reject them first. Mm. You know what I mean? It was like the opposite of what you experienced as a child where you had all these people speaking like life over you. And then here you are, you get it to Yale Law, which is like for a lot of people would be like (laughs) the pinnacle and you're speaking negative things over yourself and you're believing them. Well, I think what's powerful about that, and that's such a, like, that's so smart that you drew that connection and nobody else has drawn that connection is kind of going back to what I was saying about my dad of him always saying over himself, this is how it is, was, and always will be. Mm. Like we think, and especially I think parents think that they can say things about themselves, but say something totally different about their kids and the kids will take it at face value that it's different for them than it is for the parents. So for example, a mom saying something about her body, but saying, oh, don't worry, baby, you're perfect. Yeah. Well, as kids, we're listening. We're, you know, more is caught than taught or whatever that saying is, right? And when he was saying, you know, we're disqualified because of where we are, that'll never happen for me, regardless of anybody in my life saying you can go be whatever you want to be and go do it, I was still absorbing a lot of that, you know, when you don't grow up with a lot or you're from that area, it just doesn't happen for people like us. So it, it is this interesting thing. And, and, you know, I did have people saying, go be whatever you want, go be whatever you want. But at the same time, there's also, it was not this like perfect, like life giving message. You know, there were, there were also times when it was like, okay, but maybe that's big enough. Like I remember my dad saying, oh my gosh, you'll never go to law school. That's just way too many years of education. Cause he was speaking out of his own. He couldn't imagine going that far in, yeah. in his education. So I don't want to give like this like rainbow or perfect version of like I had so many people speaking over me. I did have very important characters in my life telling me I could be anything that I wanted to, but I was also definitely taking on their beliefs as well. And so when I when I got there to Yale Law, there was this feeling of mm, a mistake has been made. Mm, they're going to be like, just kidding. We swapped your name with somebody else's, yeah. you know, and, and, and this like lottery, Charlie, And the chocolate factory gold ticket moment was going to be taken away as quickly as it was given. So I think that that's a function of hearing their limiting beliefs about themselves, but also just there's something about growing up without a lot where it just, it gets into your head. Yeah. It's, you can call it poverty mentality. You can call it like lack of confidence. There's a bunch of different words you could call it. But I, we did a poll on Instagram of like, Hey, if you didn't grow up with a lot, like what are some of those like hangover feelings that you still struggle with those hanging over beliefs? And across the board, it was that it was like fear of failure, fear of I'm not enough, fear of I'm going to try and, and you know, I'll just fail. Cause I don't, there's something ultimately lacking in me. So I do think there's like, it's in every aspect of this book, it's like, there's the like short answer, Mm -hmm. but it's probably going to be a lot more complex than that. And we're going to dig into it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't grow up in rural West Virginia, but you know, I grew up with not a lot and, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, my dad was a roofer and then he was like a manager at Heckinger, which I think got bought by Home Depot. It's like a home improvement store, you know, and like my mom, you know, was an author, but you know, she was a Vietnam veteran and you know, so they're just, it was, and then she got sick. Uh, she was a nurse. And then she got sick um, when I was in middle school or middle school and elementary school. And so she was sick for, you know, 10, 11 years before she died and wow. she couldn't work. She was on disability. So I, I but it's interesting because I think a lot back to growing up and my parents did a really great job. Like now as an adult, I know this, um, my okay. parents did a really great job of never letting me see how much they were struggling, which I think- yeah helped me in a lot of ways. And then also I was maybe made me a little bit more idealistic <laughs> in some ways. Cause I'm like, Oh, everything's fine. Yeah. Um, when it wasn't actually really fine. So that's something yeah. I've had to break in my own life is really coming to terms with when things are really not actually fine. And I can't, I can no longer 
fake it. Um, yeah. So yeah, but that's that's really interesting that you've heard that because I've definitely had moments where I've struggled with a lot of those same things. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, do you do you have some of that, like, just from like growing up without a lot? It's just like that. I think I think it really kind of boils down to it. That just doesn't happen to people like us. Yeah. You know, and and honestly, like, if we want to get really deep, like, that's something I've thought about with this book a lot to be really careful of is I really want to walk that balance of acknowledge like this being a story and an example of like it can happen for people like us and for people who grew up where we grew up and like, hey, look, there's an example while also acknowledging that there were just a lot of places and pieces that had to fall into place in a very lucky way or or however you want to, you know, finish that sentence that just this acknowledgement that it's not, it doesn't happen for everybody. And it's not just well, I'm just going to go decide to make it happen. Like yeah. your your mindset and deciding to make it happen is an important part of it, but I just didn't want to simplify. Yeah. Like, oh, if you just work hard enough and if you just determine to do it, then it will, will always happen. Yeah. So that was a balance to walk of like paying honor to being an example of it can happen while also not just being like, Elwood, the Elwood's version of like, yeah. <laughs> pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Like what? Like it's hard? What? Like it's you hard? Know, like, I really, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to... Um, pay attention to that and not not gloss over that either. Yeah. I just want to take a quick break from my conversation with Mary to thank a couple of our partners of the show. One of our partners is the incredible The Lemonade Boutique, a women's clothing with a cause store. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I love artisan groups and for-purpose companies like Elegantees, Starfish Project, and Rahab's Rope. What I love about today's partner is that the Lemonade Boutique combines one of my favorite for-purpose companies, plus so much more in one easy-to-shop online store. Plus, if you spend $29, you get free shipping. That is a great way to shop. You can shop at thelemonadeboutique.com where your purchase empowers women to take life's lemons and make lemonade. And listeners of the Business with Purpose podcast can save 15% by using code purpose 15 at checkout. I also want to thank one of our partners of the show, and that is Simple Switch. Simple Switch is actually not new to the show because I had the founder, Rachel Kois, on the show back in the spring. And I actually want you to hear from her a little bit about what makes Simple Switch so incredibly unique. Thanks, Molly, for letting me hop on this episode. Yeah, we are an online marketplace for ethical and impactful shopping. So an Amazon alternative, if you're looking for things to be shipped to your door, but in an ethical way that makes a positive social or environmental impact, I seriously believe that we can shift a bunch of the $600 billion spent online towards companies that are values aligned and that are making a difference in the world. So that's what we're doing. And Simple Switch is offering a discount exclusively for our listeners. So you can check out the entire marketplace on simpleswitch.org and get 20% off your first order with the code purchase with purpose at checkout. That's again, that's simpleswitch.org and get 20% off your first order with code purchase with purpose at checkout. Now back to my conversation with Mary. Now I do want to, obviously, I mean, I could have you on, I need to have you on like four <laughs> more times. Um, but I do want to talk about, obviously you, you left Yale and you're like, I'm going to be a photographer. So, um, I mean, obviously I know we don't have time for you to tell the whole story of that, but so, and, and, you know, you talk about it some in the book and, um, obviously you're, you're very, you share a lot on social media about your life with Justin and you guys just have such a beautiful marriage and, um, yeah, and you had this be- this amazing, uh, highly successful, like world renowned photography business that you launched in 2006. And, yeah. What was it though that really began to come alive in you when you realized mm-hmm. like this is what I this is what I'm meant to do? And Yale maybe was just the strange connection that got you to Justin and got you into photography. Mm-hmm. And even though it doesn't for a lot of a lot of times I look back on things in my life and I go, <laughs> Thank you, Tater. Thank you for shaking right <laughs> right there. Just, I think we should just leave them all, all in. in. We're just, <laughs> just realizing it's our dogs, guys. Um <laughs> I look back on so many things in my life where I think about, you know, how it, it, the, the connection points, like connecting the dots made no sense at the time. But now I look back yeah. and go, oh, well, if I hadn't have done that, then I wouldn't have ended up here. And like, had yeah. you not gone to Yale Law, you never would have met Justin and never would have started your photography business. And so, um, yeah. you know, I'd love for you to just kind of share what, what was that? What was it about that that really made you feel like you were just coming alive? Mm, that's such a good question. I feel like a lot of what I've been learning lately is that our 
purpose and our, and our highest calling don't change. So our purpose, you know, for me with my faith, that's to love God and love people. And the calling I feel like I've been given is storytelling. And that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And, to, mm. and it's so funny because humans are wired this way. The first few times people started calling me a storyteller, I took it as I took it as like a, a backhanded compliment. I was like, oh, they mean I'm not a full-on speaker or, oh, they mean I ramble and tell stories too much or what have you. And now I'm like, I cannot think of a calling I would rather have. Yeah. Like I'm just, I was built this way. And I think about Jesus, who was the ultimate storyteller and taught through that. And we were, we were made in the image of God. So we were, we were made by the ultimate storyteller to tell stories and to learn through stories. And so to be called, you know, called to that is like, I'm just like, I'm having a ball with it. I'm just like completely blown away that that's the calling I get to walk out. So that's taken a few different forms that can take the form of storytelling and photography and through wedding days and through writing on blog posts and and emails and and Instagram. It can take the form of storytelling and public speaking or in workshops. You know, in law school, my favorite classes were the ones that taught us not just what the law was, but how it got to be there. Um, So the story behind this little tiny piece of code. And so I feel like um, I come from a very long line of storytellers. My dad is an epic storyteller. My grandma Goldie was an epic storyteller. Appalachia generally is sort of like, that's one of our things. And to be able to use stories, not just to tell stories, but to use stories to teach and and not to say, I am now going to break it down into five points about what you should get out of that. But yeah. I'm just going to tell the story. I'm going to put you right in the middle of it. It's not, you're not going to, when you, I think one of the things I'm most proud of in this book is that when you read it, you don't necessarily picture me sitting in the trailer. And I've, I've heard this from like my editor and a few other people. So it's not just me saying it. Um, you don't picture me necessarily in the trailer. You picture you in the trailer, mm. either with me or just living it yourself. And so I put you in these scenes and I'm always, it's not a true pure memoir in the sense of like, Apparently with with true pure memoir, you're never allowed to kind of like talk to your reader or even like acknowledge your readers there of like, and here are some things I learned out of that. It's just supposed to be like straight story. And so I would say this is more like spiritual growth memoir where I am having those moments where I'm like, looking back now, I realize and I go through the things I took out of it, but I leave it there for the reader to go, is that what I took out of it? Do I agree with that? Oh man, like did that just like trigger this like thing in my head of like a truth bomb that I've or a breakthrough I've been hoping to have? And so there are these moments along in the story where we just kind of pause to breathe for a minute, to kind of take it. We're climbing up this mountain, pause to take in the view for a second and go, hey, here's something that this changed in me forever about my faith or how I see the world. Maybe sit with that for a while and see what it's doing in you. So storytelling is kind of the, wow, that got off on a whole other thing. But storytelling is how yeah. we became to be on fire and run a photography business yeah. for 14 years. And, and being an entrepreneur, there's certainly a huge part of that as well. Uh, I come from a long line of small business owners as well, because that's what logging is. It's just a bunch of small businesses, basically. And I think there was just something about this idea of Justin and I building something together with our two slash four hands versus, um, you know, we kind of said we can either build a life together or we can and like maximize the amount of time we get to bear witness to each other's lives, or we can, I can go work hundred hours a week in a law firm. And so we decided to build something. And I think that's something else that carries through is this idea of building something out of nothing. Um, You know, God picked up dust off the ground and created mankind. Yeah, That's so incredible. And like, we get to take this dust in our lives and determine what it's going to mean to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I will say that like, I mean, when I started following you as a photographer, just cause I, I do freelance photography and I, I'm, I do not do weddings. I've never done weddings. I only do like <laughs> seniors and families and just for my own love of, of the art of photography, I just have so many photographers that I would follow and read their posts. And, um, yours were one of the ones that I just, I loved to read because the way that you would structure your blog posts on just cap capturing a wedding day, I felt like I was reading this like beautiful love story. I mean, it was just Mm -hmm. like epic writing. And I was like, goodness (laughs) gracious, like this is, she's sharing pictures from a wedding day and I'm like crying. This is amazing. (laughs) I mean, one that even just to this day stands out to me is um, when you did the courthouse wedding. Um, mm, you know exactly yeah. which one I'm talking about. There Mel was a, and Jeff. Yes, yeah. there was a courthouse wedding. And that entire post, I had tears just like streaming down my face as you're writing this story, just recapturing this wedding day of this couple mm-hmm. who got married in a courthouse in New York. And I yeah. just was blown away by it. And so that just, that 
when I heard that you were becoming an author, I go, yep, mm -hmm, yep, yep, makes sense. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. So, okay, well, I know we are running out of time. And I, again, I'm just, Mary, I love you so much. You're just so amazing. And <laughs> I'm going to just put it out there for the listeners. You have to go get Mary's book right now. Like while you're listening to this, if you're driving, wait till you get to like a place where you can do this safely. Right. Um, <laughs> Pull over and, and you said the, you yeah. have a little URL for them. Yes. Yeah. So we um, had a bunch of pre-order bonuses for the book. They technically expired the day before the book came out. So on the 14th. So um, for anybody who's listening, we are actually going to extend those just for your listeners. We have a special uh, URL that they can go to. So the normal URL for the book is thebookdirt.com. But for your listeners, they're going to want to go to thebookdirt.com. So T-H-E, don't forget that. T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com slash Molly. And we'll do uh, all lowercase Molly to make sure that that doesn't cause any problems. We'll, we'll make sure that that's linked up and working. <laughs> um, and so when they go and, and pre-order through there, those bonuses are still going to be live that awesome. they can get. And they include some really crazy stuff. So we're going to be doing a fall coaching series where we walk through the book, but also what it looks like to own the mud in your own story. Mm. And so that we're really excited for that. That's going to kick off in October. We are also doing, we have a five video series that talks about embracing the slow growth equals strong roots mentality that, um, you know, we have on our show and that Justin told me like in year one of my, our business and then year two, three, four, five, <laughs> as we grew slow. Um, so we have a, a five video series on that. We have um, a, a behind the scenes interview with my dad that oh, we're really excited about. Yeah. And there's just a bunch of stuff on there that you can see when you go to thebookdirt.com slash model, you'll see all the pre-order bonuses listed out there. You can grab some chapters of the audiobook, things like that. So grab that. You know, the book will come hopefully in a couple of days. You'll have it. It's a hardcover book. We're super excited about the cover. It's got the actual trailer I grew up in on the cover. The um, word dirt has these smudges and speckles that the <sighs> book cover designer actually went and photographed real dirt to create Photoshop wow. brushes, which is insane. Um, and gold foil to represent the broken beautiful. You know, it's growing strong roots and what makes the broken beautiful. So there's this mix of dirt and gold foil on the cover that kind of represents all of our stories, I feel like. Oh, oh I'm so excited. I'm so, so excited. Uh, thank you for your, your obedience and for the work that you're doing and for the lives that I know are going to be impacted by this book, Mary. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Um, thank you so much for having me. Okay. Before we go, do you have time for a couple fun get to know you questions? Of course. Okay. I'm pumped. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So question number one, of all of your pet peeves, which one <laughs> is the strangest? <laughs> you are going to die. <laughs> okay. I'm going to tell you the funny one that I say you're going to die about, and then I'll tell you another real one. One of my biggest pet peeves is the word pet peeve. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know amazing. why. I don't know. I still think about that word peeve. I don't know. Yeah, it is a um, pretty terrible word. <laughs> but I'll give you a real one. I'll give you a real one. What? Not that that's not real because it really it That really is hilarious. Is. I don't know why. Um, but one of my things, and there's an actual like phobia with this, and I don't, I forget what it's called, but the small things in clumps. So like the inside of a pepper, all the seeds. Oh, yeah. on a hive, chicken pox. Whoa. I can't handle like small things all clumped up on top of each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't even know that that's a thing. Yeah. I love it. Phobia. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Um, well, I don't like bees. So I know, and I have a garden, so I, I want them to come pollinate my things, but then I don't want them to be near me. So yeah, right. <laughs> I am a grown woman in her mid thirties and <laughs> I, you would think that I'm like a five-year-old when I see a bee, I'm like, ah! and I, yeah. my husband, uh, has a lot of fun at my expense when I see a bee. He's just like, yeah, well, how, you know, how old are you? <laughs> when I was little, I, t I mentioned this really briefly in the book. When I was little, we stepped in a yellow jacket's nest because they nest mm -mm. on the ground. Mm -mm. And we all, there were a bunch of us kids in the neighborhood, we all got stung about a hundred times each. And so, mm -mm. Mm -mm. you know, I mean, you get stung a couple times. You, there's, there's yeah. this, this gun shy fear, which I feel like is a whole metaphor for the, the world right now. Yeah. Um, but really we come to find out that they're just trying to do their job and yeah. And that we need them and that they're here for a reason and yeah, they're not yeah. nearly as prickly as you think. <laughs> hard, There's a whole metaphor pass, there. Hard yeah, pass yeah, yeah. For me. <laughs> I know, I know. Save the honeybees. <laughs> Save your emails. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Um, if you had to eat the same meal for dinner every night for the rest of your life, what would it be? Mashed potato and chicken pizza from Bar Brew Room in New Haven, Connecticut. Oh. It is amazing. That does sound amazing. Mm -hmm. okay. It's got mashed potatoes, garlic, chicken, 
pizza. All right. <laughs> it's amazing. All right. Yeah. Next time I'm in Conne- my my aunt lives in Connecticut. So next time I'm up there, gonna, done. We're, we're making it happen. New Haven's famous for its pizza. Actually, we have three of the top pizzerias in the world. I, you know, the last time I was up there when um, my my actually for my uncle's funeral, um, we went to a pizza place there and I don't remember and we went to a pizza place in New Haven and I don't remember what it was called. So I'll have to ask and yeah. then I'll get back to you. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, if you were a professional athlete, okay, <laughs> what would your walk up like hype song B. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought you were gonna ask me like what it would be. And I was like, oh, this is gonna go bad. <laughs> um oh man, what would my walk up song be? I think I would go with something like, you know, maybe like a country song, like May We All, for example. That would be like an, a modern one or like, oh gosh, like I don't know, maybe killing time from I'm sort of like in the dirt frame of mind. So I'm thinking of all these songs I associate with being a kid, but if not, maybe something like, mm, gosh, this is a hard, this I is a know, hard right? question. I don't know. I keep vacillating in my head between a country song or like into club. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what it is. I know what it is. Oh man, why did I not go here immediately? So I'm going to give you the short version of this. Every single day when I was writing dirt, oh man, people are not going to buy the book now, but it's going to be fine. Every single morning when I was writing dirt, I would get myself pumped up by listening to Eminem's Lose Yourself because he talks about mama, I love you, but this trailer's got to go. Yeah. You know, you got one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. And like, I kept telling myself, this is my chance to write my story. I do not want to mess around and miss my Ooh, <laughs> opportunity. That's, good. that's deep. So I know. And then, I mean, I can get really deep with you and I will tell you this very shortly. I did this all winter, every single morning, sometimes multiple times. Then I'd go right for like 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., 12 hours at a time. Guess who made a surprise appearance on the Oscars this year? Eminem singing Lose Yourself. What are the odds of that? What are the odds of that? What are the odds? What are the odds? (laughs) I, that is fantastic. Okay. Then Mary, this is my last question. This is what I ask all my guests. And that is, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? Oh, I think it's, this is this has been oh gosh such a good question. This has been the it's the running theme in dirt. It's the running theme in my life. It's been you know we didn't even get into this, but d- draft one of dirt was vastly different than the book that people will hold into their hands. Mm. And if I had written this book right after law school or five years ago or ten years ago, it would have been a vastly different book because that book would have been like look what I came from and look where I went and look what I did. And there you know I didn't want to like pretend like that stuff didn't happen like you know, oh gosh, like, like falsely, like dismissing things about, you know, going to law school or whatever. But the biggest change in my life has been, I used to think it was about going from like surviving to success. And now I believe it's about going from surviving past success to this point of significance. And I think Mm. we find that significance when our ambitions and our checklist of success and our goals seek being about what we've done and how they make us feel and our identity. And they start becoming about how they serve the world and how they serve others. And it's sort of this, I mean, the running theme of my life has been like death to self to truly come alive. And so it's like just letting go of like this need for applause and this need for like gold stars and A pluses and look what I did and look what I did and look what I did. And like, look, I'm I'm not the, you know, and there's a part of the book where it's like, do you love me now? Do you love me now? Am I enough uh-huh. now? Um, and it's like truly saying, what are the gifts I've been given? What sets me on fire? What will I regret on my deathbed if I don't go do? And what serves others? What's what's going to leave the world a little bit better, a little softer, a little more closer, you know, a little closer to healing? So um, I think running a business with purpose is when it stops being about you and you running from what you think is broken about you and you finding your identity in those things. And you start to go, God wired me with certain gifts. How do I slide into heaven going, I used them all. You know, that Irma mm-hmm. Bombeck quote, I'll stand before God and say, I don't have a single talent left. I used everything you gave me. That's purpose. Mm. Mary, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for for writing this book. I just adore you. You're just amazing. (laughs) Um, And I know that everyone that will listen to this um, will feel the same way. So thank you, friend. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Friend, I would love to know what you loved about this conversation with Mary. Let me know something that you learned or inspired you. You can let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast. 
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're a first-time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring incredible entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you're a regular listener of the show, thank you for tuning in week in and week out and thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, or basically wherever you listen to podcasts and click that subscribe or follow button. Clicking that button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you take a moment to leave a review? Leaving a review of the show actually helps me to know what you're liking and how this show is personally impacting you. This show is produced by the incredible team at Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose.